Hello, and welcome to another episode of Biome Sweet Biome. My name is Brittany Dodge, and I will be your host as we discuss native flora and fauna to the southeastern United States, particularly the low country and coastal Georgia, where I work as a naturalist. Today's episode is Insects in the Winter. And while many of you guys are probably balking at the idea of winter in coastal Georgia, we do still technically have winter temperatures, though typically much later in the season and much milder than our northern friends. Now, insects here have it much easier because of this than other places, and that's probably why our insect populations hold steadier than other rapidly declining areas, according to research done by a team of agroecologists from University of Georgia. This is pretty important news, considering many other places, particularly in Europe, are about to experience an insect apocalypse. And while that sounds kind of scary, it kind of is. Insects are a very important part of our life. So what do insects do during the mild winters? Well, that answer is a bit more complicated. We'll discuss three different strategies insects take to beat the winter chills and answer a listener's question about your probably least favorite insect. So you've all probably heard about how bees keep warm in the winter by flapping their wings and staying inside of their hives, but there's actually a lot more at work here, and it takes a lot of dedication and sacrifice to get a hive through winter weather. Honeybees begin to head into the hive when temperatures drop into the 50s, and they gather into the central area of the hive to form what's known as a winter cluster. Kind of think of it like a team huddle in a football game, but with the queen in the middle instead of the coach. Worker bees have one goal in the winter, take care of the queen and keep her safe and warm. To do this, they must sacrifice male bees or drones by kicking them out of the hive. Sorry boys, the resources are for the queen and she doesn't need you anymore. Um, Their only purpose really is to mate with the queen and that's only been accomplished during the spring, so off they go. The female worker bees then surround their queen in the cluster and flutter their wings, and shiver their bodies, producing a constant flow of endothermic heat and thermal regulate the temperatures of the core of the hive to be around 80 degrees Fahrenheit. In order to keep up this constant motion, though, bees have to consume a lot of honey that they stored up in order to feed themselves and the queen. Now, some studies found that hives will consume up to 30 pounds of stored honey over the course of a single winter. Now, of course, this depends heavily on the hive's initial size and surrounding temperatures and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But what makes all this so fascinating is the coordination and self-sacrificing movements of the worker bees. You see, while the inside of the cluster is a nice toasty 80 degrees, the outside can be, you know, as low as 36 degrees, as well as the fact the outside bees can't stop shivering long enough to ingest honey. So in order to survive, they have to share the responsibility. The winter bees rotate from the exterior of the cluster to the inside so that no individual gets too cold or tired. The colder outside temps, the tighter the cluster will become to help compensate and regulate. Now on warmer days, these bees will elect to leave the cluster to eliminate waste outside the hive for what's called a cleansing flight. Um, This is also whenever the workers will take out the deceased uh, females, other females uh, from the hive. Usually female worker bees only live about six weeks while a queen lives roughly five years. Now another strategy is to just skip winter altogether. Many insects overwinter by entering a state of either diapause or hibernation. Now what's the difference you might ask? 
Diapause is a physiological dormancy in any stage of an insect's development versus hibernation, which is an inactive winter sleep when they're already fully developed. Fly species will undergo diapause. They'll stay in their larval or pupal stage and under organic material in protected locations until the temperatures warm up. Versus ants, which will hibernate. They eat large amounts of food and fall for preparation, and as the temperatures drop, they become sluggish and their metabolic rate slows way, way down, and they start running off their food reserves until the temperatures rise up enough for them to become active again. In both diapause and insect hibernation, oxygen con uh, consumption is almost undetectable since the metabolic rate is reduced so drastically. The energy saved up can be channeled towards producing proteins like sugar alcohols and other substances that act like an antifreeze inside of their bodies to keep delicate membranes and other structures in the body from being damaged by cold, dehydration, or even deoxygenation. The last strategy is one that some humans often employ as well, migration. Monarch butterflies migrate each summer and autumn to and from overwintering sites in Mexico. Some other species of butterfly perform minor migrations, but none are quite as impressive as the subspecies of monarch butterfly. Millions of monarchs travel upwards of 3,000 miles, but unlike birds or mammals, what makes it so impressive is that many undertaking the journey will never return. It might take as many as four to five generations to complete the journey to their home from Mexico overwintering sites. The waves of monarchs heading north will complete their entire life cycles in just five to seven weeks each. But when fall rolls around again, a super generation, especially of, of monarchs that come to live up to eight months, will make use of the air currents to fly back to Mexico, a seemingly impossible feat for such a delicate looking insect. Now, speaking of flying creatures, uh, that brings us to our listener question which comes in today from a local with a problem many of us outdoorsmen and women face in the coastal Georgia area. Why do we need gnats? They are so annoying. How are they important to our ecosystem? Well, sand gnats, or flies, are very common pests to our area. They are small flies, only about three millimeters long, and are brownish-gray colored with long, piercing mouth parts. Uh, that are very well adapted to sucking blood from their hosts, which are often us. And like the mosquito, only the females actually feast on blood. The only way to help develop the eggs in a normal cycle is to uh, actually consume um, the blood to help with the hatching process. Now, normally, and always for the male, sandflies consume plant nectar. So they are actually pollinators. There actually has been some research done by an international team of researchers that found sandflies have a strong preference for cannabis uh, plants over all the other plant choices. Now, uh, extracts or oils that smell like cannabis oils could possibly be used to bait sandfly traps in the future, but who knows? So do, do they contribute to our uh, ecosystem? Absolutely. Now, a pest is really only categorized as a pest when an insect population becomes out of control or when natural predators cannot keep up with the birth rate of the prey. Sandflies, mosquitoes, midges, and other bugs of annoyance serve as important food sources for birds, bats, and larger insects. And without them, 
Uh, Insect-eating birds like purple martins, woodpeckers, bluebirds, swallows, and more would die off. Um, everything is always in balance in nature. You have to continue with the circle of life. If the birds die off, then things like raccoons and other animals like that would die off, and then things like alligators or apex predators in the area would die off as well. So everything is in balance, even annoying insect bugs. Now, all has a purpose. Now, to help balance out your annoying insect uh, to your bird ratio, uh, try installing a bird box or bat boxes in your yard. This can help attract them and uh, help them keep around the area in order to eat some of those bugs for you. Now, to submit your own questions, suggest topics for our ne next episode, or to get more information about any of the topics covered in today's episode, please email me at naturalist@fordplantation.com. I hope you took away some useful information, and thanks for listening to Biome Sweet Biome.